Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're bringing you the messages that you have sent to us. Uh, To start us off today, we've actually got a straggler that I think was originally sent like last September or October. But uh, as we mentioned on the show a few times, I think we lost some mail from that period. So, something happened to it. And so Carolyn resent this one. You want to start with this one, Rob? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, this is from Carolyn about the Leshy. You remember the, uh, the, the creature of the forest in Russian mythology. Carolyn says, Hi, Robert and Joe. I just finished your episode on the Leshy. Once you described the creature, I kept expecting you to bring up similarities it has with the wolf in the Little Red Riding Hood tale. I had never heard of this creature before, but that was the first thing I associated it with. You mentioned one of its usual forms is that of a wolf and that it likes to lead unwary travelers off the path. Other parts of the character that seemed to correspond were... When it disguises itself as the grandmother, there is something off, and Little Red Riding Hood's mother specifically warns her not to talk to strangers or stray from the path. Could the wolf in this tale be a version of the Leshy that traveled from the folktales of Russia to the folktales of Germany? Regardless, from now on I'm going to think of the wolf from that tale as a Leshy in disguise. It makes a lot more sense as a Leshy than as a random wolf interested in a quick two-course dinner, Carolyn. 
Uh, well, Carolyn, this is an interesting idea. I don't know if it would go exactly as as direct a line as that, like you have Leshy and then that turns into the wolf in Little Red Riding Hood. But I can absolutely uh, see that this could come out of similar uh, sort of uh, myth or folktale archetypes that are kind of banging around throughout folktales of, of, of the whole world, actually. Because uh, I remember reading in the past that the Little Red Riding Hood folktale is thought to is thought to sort of be influenced by mythemes or bits of stories and and story elements that you find all throughout the world. You find all throughout the the folk tales of ancient Europe, in North Africa, even in Asia. Uh, and it's uh, yeah, yeah. So it it seems to be one of those things that's kind of a stew of different elements that you can find in bits and pieces from myths going way way back. Yeah, I mean, Robert Frost was right about one thing. The the woods are deep and they are dark. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that has a lot of things have crept out of that imagined darkness uh, in human uh, mythmaking and legend over over time. So I feel like they these two creatures, even if they, there's not any real connective tissue, they both emerge from that same darkness. Yeah, I, I seem to recall that I don't know if this is actually a legitimate connection, but I seem to recall there's some kind of idea that there's like a a very ancient myth archetype about like a fire maiden, like a young woman or girl who is somehow associated with, with fire or redness in a way who is attacked by a wolf and then rescued by a hero of some kind. And then that I think is also paired somewhat with uh, like uh, the classic sort of restoration from the dead or restoration from the belly myth part that you get in uh, the story of Jonah being swallowed by the whale and then spit back out. But you can even get in directly in Russian folktales where mm-hmm. somebody's eaten by a wolf and then survives after being cut out of the belly. Yeah. All right, we got another one. Uh, this is also, a, I, I guess, a straggler, but as we always say, stragglers are welcome. This goes back to our episode on fingernails, and it comes from Sicily. Rob, do you want to read this one? Sure, here we go. This is what it says. I am a new listener and am currently listening to your two-part episode from September 2020 on fingernails. I am someone who regularly has enhanced with hard gel or acrylic very long fingernails. I attached a picture for reference. You asked for stories about living with long nails, and I thought you might be interested to know that tool use and knuckle use are important for success. There are very few things I cannot do with long nails and mostly turn my knuckles into fingertips to do things like pop soda tabs or remove contact lenses. Now, that's impressive uh, as a contact where, um, yeah, I, I have never attempted to use my knuckles to get them out. Uh, I, I'm, I guess it's possible. Wait, which knuckle? Would it be your first knuckle or second knuckle? I don't know. I'm just imagining all knuckles. Maybe I'm envisioning it wrong, but I'm just imagining just going in there just uh, like 10 knuckles uh, and removing the contact lenses. You know, it would be a really interesting cyberpunk enhancement would be fingertips on your knuckles. So you get like separate finger pads extending out from, I guess, your, your first, your large knuckle. Have I seen that before? I feel like I've seen something like that. Maybe not cyberpunky, but something like fleshy, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It rings a bell. Anyway, they continue. Tools like tweezers can be helpful for things you might use the edge of your nail for. Certain styles of common objects are also more nail-friendly, like a keyboard with flat, thin keys to allow typing with finger pads instead of fingertips. Though I still often use pencils with erasers to type on other types of keyboards. The hardest routine task I encounter is actually putting an earring back onto an earring 
as the nail tends to get in the way of both a very small object and a very specific motor movement. Hmm. Oh, maybe that's supposed to be putting an earring on an ear. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I could see that being difficult. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they continue. An additional layer to note about nails is that there is a tendency, at least for me, to try to use them as tools, but doing so will cause them to break despite fortification. So much of the tool and knuckle use is not because I cannot do the task with nails, but rather to preserve their integrity. <laughs> Lastly, I enjoyed hearing the supernatural slash scary aspects of long nails that you described in your episode because I specifically like having long pointy nails that reference demonic or witchy aesthetics. I'm greatly enjoying the episodes I've heard so far, and I'm excited to keep listening. Thanks, Cicely. Well, Cicely, welcome on board. We, we hope you keep enjoying, and uh, thanks for, for sharing your experience with long nails. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you are specifically trying to be demonic or witchy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was just uh, appreciating nails the other day because I was uh, working on uh, some miniatures, and, you know, I use like a little file, and I use a little razor blade to mm -hmm. uh, remove unwanted portions of the plastic. But then there are times where I realize, you know what works better than either of these uh, fine instruments? The fingernail itself. You know, mm -hmm. it's like fingernails are just so, so useful for fine manipulation, uh, often in ways that we just take for granted. I don't know how gross to get on the show here, but I think some people would say that that fingernails are sort of like perfect tools for pimple popping. Perfect, grimy, <laughs> disease-ridden yeah. tools. Yeah. Ugh, yeah, that, that, that can lead to some skin infections, I bet. Wait, I guess a pimple already is a kind of skin infection, right? Or am I right about that? I don't really know. I guess we'll have to sort that out later. Okay, next we've got a short message about the bonsai episode where we talked about Tate's Hell, the forest in Florida where the dwarf cypress grow. And this is a, uh, a short message from Sammy. She says, hello there, guys. I have been in the Florida panhandle my whole life, which would be 35 years. I knew not of this Tate and his personal hell that is a Florida forest. So thank you guys for bringing it to my attention. I've Googled it and live about an hour and 45 minutes away. So now I have a new place to take my son camping. No, don't do it, Sammy. <laughs> uh, he, he will have fun with the name. If nothing else, thank you, Sammy. I'm sure it's safe these days if you, you know, have navigation devices and all yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's more Tate's heck these days. <laughs> this next message comes to us from Mark, and it is about our episode on gold. I guess I'm going to read this one because, Rob, after this, there are some about Avatar The Last Airbender, and I assume those are your territory. Okay. Mark says, hi, Robert and Joe, huge fan of your podcast. My favorite bits are when you connect the central topic to some other esoteric piece of knowledge deep in the recesses of your minds. When the pandemic is over, you should have a contest to win lunch with Robert and Joe. I expect the conversation would lead to some interesting places. Uh, well, that's very nice of you to say, Mark, but I suspect I am much more boring in person. Uh, my wife and son have been winning that contest every day for uh, over a year now. And, uh, yeah, they, they would prefer to, to watch episodes of Avatar during, <laughs> during lunch. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, Mark goes on. In your gold medal episode, you talked about how gold did not have many practical applications beyond its use as jewelry or coinage, and then later in electronics and medicine. But the studious high school chemistry student in me would be remiss to forget Rutherford's gold foil experiment. Ah, this is great to bring up. Uh, so Mark writes, at the time of the experiment, 
Scientists did not know the structure of the atom. We know today that it consists of negative electrons orbiting a positive nucleus of protons and neutrons. Back then, after the electron was discovered, someone theorized the, quote, plum pudding model, which conceived of the electrons surrounded by a field of positively charged plums. Rutherford's experiment was to shoot an alpha particle beam through a thin piece of gold foil and see what happened to the particles. The result was that the particles deflected off at sharp angles, some even bouncing backwards. From this, he deduced that the positive charge was not spread out around the electrons, but rather packed into a tight, compact nucleus. So why was gold used? Because it was so soft and malleable, they could compress it into an extremely thin layer. In an ideal experimental state, the foil would only be one atom thick. Obviously, this was not possible, but they got it thin enough. Thanks for all the great episodes. Keep them coming, Mark. Well, thanks for pointing that out, Mark. That that, that was a great, great uh, historic example to bring up. Awesome. Yes. Uh, now, we're about to get into some some Avatar The Last Airbender content, because I think in the gold episode, we ended up talking about gold bending and Avatar. So if you have no idea what this stuff is about, I will try to be your Avatar in the conversation. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we, we received uh, some Avatar listener mail from, uh, I think, Three or four different people, but we have two of them included here. So this one comes to us from Emily. Hi, Robert and Joe. I'm a longtime listener, and I am very grateful for the many hours of learning and entertainment you've provided me. I also love the new Weird House Cinema episodes, so thank you so much for that. I reached out to my Avatar Legend of Korra superfan friend Andy with your question about metal benders bending gold. This was her response. In the scene where Kuvira crushes the Kyoshi Medal of Freedom during Prince Wu's coronation, you can see from the coloring of the medal that there is likely gold in it. Additionally, when looking at the royal brooch, one can see it is meant to be gold, which would signify that royal artifacts in the Earth Kingdom have a large gold component. It would also be reasonable that if metal benders are able to bend meteorites, that there would be nothing stopping them easily bending a soft metal such as gold. Hope this is interesting to you. Keep it up, Emily in Vermont. Okay, Rob, can you explain the context here? What, what's this about? Um, this was – so I, I watched this episode not too long ago when we were mm-hmm. going through uh, uh, The Legend of Korra. And, yeah, it's basically someone who has the metal bending ability. They, they crush something that has uh, – gold in it but uh so 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 yes that's that's a good example from the show but then we also heard from a listener named hannah and she points out something even uh i i I, uh, even more uh, on point here so hannah writes in and says i was so excited when you mentioned avatar the last airbender in your latest episode on gold i'm a huge fan of Avatar The Last Airbender and consider it one of the most formative pieces of media in my, of my life. I was smack dab in its target age group. I think I was 10 or 11 when it premiered on Nickelodeon and watched every episode when it aired. I have since, at various points, rewatched the entire series three or more times as I got older, as well as watching The Legend of Korra twice and reading all the comics. Watching it as a child, I just love the epic plot, exciting fights, and fun humor. Coming back to it as an adult, however, I am able to appreciate how well-developed the characters are and how nuanced the treatment of some heavy subjects are, like war, imperialism, genocide, and grief, especially how they impact children and families. I always appreciate media that treats its young audiences as the intelligent beings that they are and and knows that kids can handle complex and challenging subjects if they're presented with enough patience. 
Anyway, the real reason I wanted to write in is that I think I know why we never see any earthbenders bending gold. I'm going to avoid as many spoilers as possible. Metal bending is invented in uh, Avatar The Last Airbender by an extremely powerful earthbender who realizes that because metal is, quote, earth that has been purified and refined, they can use their unique ability to see the impurities left in the metal and bend that. By the time of Avatar Legend of Korra, 70 years later, metal bending as a technique is far more widespread. In this series, it is revealed that metal benders cannot bend platinum as it is too pure, and there are not enough trace amounts of earth for them to detect and bend. Given the associations of gold and purity, I think it would not be bendable in the same way that they treat platinum in the universe of the show. I cannot possibly gush enough about Avatar, so I'll end by mentioning the fun fact that each bending style is inspired by different real-life martial arts. For example, water bending is based on Tai Chi. I remember as a child seeing the short behind-the-scenes snippet during ad breaks on Nickelodeon where the martial arts consultants of the show would explain why certain styles were chosen with side-by-side comparisons between the animated scenes and himself demonstrating the movements in real life. It was really interesting and beautiful. Anyway, thanks so much for the podcast. I always look forward to it showing up in my feed. Oh, well, thanks so much, Hannah. Um, okay. So this, this raises more questions for me. So the idea is that the, the, the natural earth bender person in, in the show can, can manipulate earth in like a telekinetic type way. Is that mm-hmm. basically it? Um, but the earth must mean something than just like any solid material that comes out of the ground, because of course, you know, gold and platinum would be uh, would be metals that can be found in the earth. So, what is the actual earth that can be bent, and what are the kind of impurities you're looking for in gold or platinum in order to bend it? Well, I mean, basically, the, the main earth building you see is just like rocks, you know, like mm-hmm. causing the rocks in the earth, whatever minerals happen to be there, and using those, like making shields rise up, you know, throwing rocks at people with it, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, it gets really elaborate. And later you see people using like stone constructs as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, the idea here is, I guess, that perhaps gold in and of itself is just too pure to bend. Uh, you need something with uh, – if you're going to bend a metal, it has to have impurities in it. So you're actually bending the impurities or using the impurities as kind of the um, – the you know the, the the handle by which you uh, you bend the other material in, in a similar way there's a, a variety of water bender that pops up called a blood bender where and it's you know this is like the dark uh, side of water bending where you can manipulate a human being by bending the water in their body so you're not bending yeah. the human you're bending the water in their flesh and this is would be similar you bend the metal by bending the impurities in the metal Oh, it's like that thing we already mentioned, uh, the the scene in X-Men 2 where somebody gets injected with a bunch of iron in their blood and then Magneto messes with them. And, you know, hey, if you go with the the theory of of, of gold's origin, of it being ultimately extraterrestrial in nature, maybe you can can heat that uh, in there as well. You know, it's like you're an earth bender, not a, uh, you know, space mineral bender. Okay, so I just looked it up. I was trying to find what are the main elemental impurities that are found in high-purity gold. And according to a paper by DJ Kinneberg called Origin and Effects of Impurities in High-Purity Gold in 1998, uh, the majority of the impurities in gold were silver, followed by iron, copper, and lead. So mm-hmm. maybe uh, if you're trying to bend gold, you're, you're looking for one of those things. I mean, I'd imagine... If you're able to, if you're an earthbender and you can move rocks around, probably one of the things you can move is iron, right? Yeah, yeah, I would imagine so. 
So anyway, interesting, uh, interesting to think about it all and to sort of uh, it's always interesting exercise to take uh, the world of fiction and magic and then compare it with the world of metallurgy and see where you go. <laughs> Okay, this next message comes from Sophie, and it is a follow-up from a previous email she sent about our episodes on head and brain theft. Now, in Sophie's original email, she compared the repeated student prank theft of Jeremy Bentham's nasty jerky head to something called the gavel goat. Uh, we didn't know exactly what that was off offhand, and were forced to do some rapid Googling. Uh, but she follows up on that subject. So Sophie says, Dear Robert and Joe, all that time agonizing over sentence phrasing and making my contextual sidebars easy to cut around for anecdote shortening, and not once did I think, hang on, they might not know what that is. Memory is so faulty. Face palm. The gavel goat in Sweden, aside from seeming like a lovely annual tradition, has organically gained an unasked for tradition where the large goat raised for advent in gavel Sweden gets burned down or otherwise destroyed nearly every year. Uh, she attaches a couple of articles. Um, basically, it's become an embedded arms race between people trying to fireproof and protect the statue while others attempt to destroy it to extreme lengths involving cameras, flaming arrows, confused foreigners. Um, I, I don't know what all those references are, but. She goes on, the fact that it's illegal vandalism does little to challenge the fact that it's now an organically established sociocultural phenomenon. Once it becomes a globally known thing watched annually to see what protections are added or how long it lasts, it's much harder to stop. Thus, what I meant to reference was the fact that if stealing Jeremy Bentham's head became a routine occurrence with momentum behind it, like the unintentional tradition of burning the lovely goat has, it goes from an aberrant side note slash periodic problem to a constant battle that begins to feel inevitable, and likely one that University College London wishes to avoid, unless, of course, Bentham had some sort of expressed wish somewhere that he would like his head to be periodically stolen. That would be wild. Anyways, with the opportunity to once again compliment you on your work, your Friday features are the closest I will ever come to being able to watch many of your favorite movies, like horror films. But I get to hear you talk about things with passionate enjoyment and better wrap my head around the cult-important yet mystifying Troll 2, Sausage Man, Synthetic Flesh, Synthetic Flesh, and assure you that I'm not holding my breath on a website and writing this from the grave. But you can't receive that for which you do not politely ask, no? Pretty sure I still have my head and brain and everything. Already, this looks so much longer than it felt in my head, so I shall away lest I conceive more syllables. Hope y'all are safe and well as that looks for you, Sophie. Well, I have to say, I don't think there's really a cult following behind Sausage Man. No, I think point. that's just I, us. Yeah, just us. Uh, but hey, maybe the, the cult is growing. Maybe we have three members of the cult now. Uh, I've never we'll heard anybody else really make much cult reference to synthetic flesh either, weirdly, because it seems like that should inspire... You'd think, like we were saying, that should be, DJ should be dropping that sample um, like crazy, I, mm -hmm. I would think. Synthetic flesh. Synthetic flesh. Synthetic flesh.
DJ Carney. Um, but I'm but sure then again, it, even if the even if the the actual phrase "synthetic flesh" and that and that uh, line from the film isn't uh, worshipped, I feel like that's the 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 use of special effects in that film definitely influenced a lot of people. So at least the spirit of synthetic flesh has traveled far. Troll Two absolutely has its own organic cult following, but but I think Sausage Man is is all stuff to blow your mind. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. 
In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. This next one comes to us from Justin. This one says, hello, Rob, Joe, and Seth. I've been listening for approximately five years now, and this is my first time writing in. I have really enjoyed the new format. I realize it takes a lot of effort for everyone on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind team to pull together and put out quality content consistently. Uh, but you really have been and continue to deliver the goods each day and every day. But I must insert that I was perfectly fine with how it was before. As a consumer, <laughs> your program has truly become a five-course meal. <laughs> I enjoy having a listener mail episode to kick the week off. It adds a real-time element and offers uh, consideration on the perceptions of the audience with the topic while the topic is still fresh in my mind. Uh, while many of the listeners can offer expertise on subjects covered, I do not have anything new or exciting to offer at this time, and that's okay, I think. I figure my input is just as valuable. I was concerned when invention was absorbed, invention episodes are, are a delight, and I'm happy to see core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind include invention. I feel that the Artifact episodes show off your writing skills. I would say your conversational tone has been what keeps me listening, and Artifact episodes might lack that tone, uh, but have the same DNA incorporating curiosity and wonder, all the while acknowledging some topics are short and sweet. Weird House. I was talking with my wife about this new portion. She mentioned that it seems like this show is tailored specifically for me. I happen to love movies found off the beaten path. I have often uh, called them winners. I have a few personal favorites I would love for you to explore. Redline. If you only cover one animated feature, consider this film. Creatures, speedsters, an invasion. I've watched this movie with uh, the same group of friends several times, and I am always in awe. Funky Boy Awoken on Robo World. I don't know how to explain this movie. It's like a mashup of tropes and pop culture with an excellent artistic direction. Uh, Dr. Otto and the Riddle of the Gloom Beam. I stumbled upon this. It plays off the zany characters developed by uh, Jim Varney, uh, a.k.a. Ernest. Um, a low-budget sci-fi delight. It hits all the weird notes. Lastly, I must sing of praise and admiration. You folks are my travel companions and always lift my spirits. You should know how much your work and your integrity means to me and my fellow listeners. Often your work is the best part of my day. Thank you. Oh, well, th that is far too kind, Justin. Uh, yeah, th thanks for getting in touch. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, we appreciate the feedback. And thanks for bringing Redline to my attention. Uh, it was totally off my radar. But after watching a clip, I actually ordered a copy of this because it looks absolutely insane. So um, I don't know yet if it's definitely Weird House material, but I'm looking forward to checking it out on my own at the very least. Uh, as for Dr. Otto... I've never seen it, but I grew up watching all the Ernest movies, of course. And weirdly enough, I was childhood friends with director, uh, Ernest director and co-creator John R. Cherry III's nephew. And so I, I remember distinctly he had some, uh, his nephew had some art on his wall in his room uh, that, that, uh, that his uh, uncle had uh, drawn or painted for him. And I remember it was like, you know, weird, almost kind of psychedelic art. It was, it was pretty neat. 
Wow, I just looked up the VHS box for Dr. Otto, and it is alive. Is, <laughs> is this also... So it looks like Jim Varney as Ernest on the cover in like a little box, maybe just showing you like, hey, remember Ernest? It's this guy. But then the bigger picture is, I think, also Jim Varney, but more in a kind of psychedelic Elvis look. Uh, yeah, he had several characters that he played. You know, he did the Ernest character, he had an old woman character, and then this Gloombeam character who... It was like him as some sort of maniacal, you know, creature with a, a hand on the top of his head. Um, I seems like I saw, saw that character pop up on some TV show or another when I was a kid as well. You know what? He looks like a character who could fit in in Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah, yeah, probably so. Uh, yeah, Varney, Varney was a great performer. Uh, I enjoyed him in, in pretty much everything I saw. Mostly it was Ernest films, though. Uh, and I, I do remember Ernest Scared Stupid as being uh, quite enjoyable, at least when I was a child. Uh, I gotta confess, I think I was scared by that movie. Like it, it had that was it had me. some legitimately scary stuff in it, uh, as I recall. It's been a long time, but this some sort of troll creature that is yes. the, the central threat is like legitimately a bit scary. I think that it could turn people into wood by looking at them, oh. and our, that prospect scared me. I did not yeah. want to be turned into wood. Yeah, it delivered more horror than an earnest film. Uh, had to, you know, but I guess it was, you know, for a, a, for creators like that was probably, you know, one of the things it's like if you're going to make just a whole bunch of earnest movies in your career, when you do a Halloween one, like that's your excuse to let let loose and fit in as much like horror stuff as you possibly can. So I, I applaud them for that. Okay, now we got some straight up Weird House Cinema messages. Uh, so this first one comes from Brenda. Brenda says, hello, just listen to your Ghost in the Machine episode. Uh, remember, that was the 90s cyber panic one that was mm -hmm. uh, like a, the haunted computer movie. And Brenda says, uh, was wondering if Johnny Mnemonic from 1995 would be a movie you would consider for Weird House Cinema. It's based on a William Gibson story with a cast including Keanu Reeves, Dolph Lundgren, Ice-T, and Henry Rollins. And don't forget the Yakuza, uh, a must at the time for futuristic cyberpunk, and Jones, a military-trained dolphin, and it's set in 2021. Thank you and stay well. Saying be well is a little too demolition man, Brenda. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I've, I've never seen uh, Johnny Mnemonic, um, though I'm, I'm well, well aware of it. I mean, it was based on a, a William Gibson short story, as I recall. And, yeah, it's loaded with with uh, fun performers. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe we'll check it out. We have it's a tw it takes place this year. So this would be the year to do it. I guess so. Oh, and then by serendipity. Right around the same time, might, maybe even the same day, we got another note from a listener about Johnny Mnemonic. Uh, this one was from Chris. Chris says, Hi, Robin Joe. Queued up quite the interesting film this evening on Prime. I'm a big Keanu Reeves fan, but had never seen Johnny Mnemonic. Not sure if it's weird enough, but it's quite interesting as there is a strange 90s mashup of technology. There is talk of sending faxes having a brain capacity of 320 gigabytes and some sort of device that looks like a mini CD player. Remember those? There is a wild device that looks sort of like a laser floss that can cut through anything. 
There's a cut scene of a Concorde jet landing. Dina Meyer, who plays, uh, I guess, a character named Jane, has a quite manic energy during some moments. Oh, and Dolph Lundgren is in this movie. There's a dolphin that can scan sound waves, and Keanu refers to it as a fish. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I feel bad for the dolphin. Ice-T shows up as a character. Well, it's really something else. Best, Chris. Well, there you go. I mean, it sounds like we should probably add it to the list. We've got enough people asking for it. Yeah. Oh, and one last thing. Chris also wrote to us like right around the same time to say that uh, they were going to watch Boggy Creek 2. And they said, <laughs> thank you for always expanding my horizons. <laughs> that's what that's what Boggy Creek 2 does. It <laughs> yeah. Expands horizons. It's about learning. <laughs> All right. Uh, here's another one. This one comes to us from Wonko. Uh, Wonko writes in and says, hello, Robert and Joe. I was getting caught up on this week's cast and listening to Weird House Cinema episode on Demon Night. I was struck with inspiration to write in. You mentioned that each successive chosen one adds their blood to the key and possibly dilutes the blood of Christ in the process. But many Christian faiths believe that when normal water is added to holy water, then it too becomes holy. Perhaps the chosen one's blood is similarly uh, transubstantiated when added. Thank you for everything, Wonko. Ah, this is a very good point. Yeah, so like uh, the the thing in the movie is that Billy Zane, I guess, is trying to pour all of the Christ blood out of this bottle key thing. It's the MacGuffin in the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and somehow the, the chosen ones, which originally is William Sadler, the guy who's doing like naked martial arts in his hotel room in Die Hard 2, mm -hmm. uh, and then later Jada Pinkett, uh, they put their blood in there, and uh, and I guess that somehow mixes with the blood of Christ, and yeah, it does some kind of magic. But this is a good point, though I wonder if, like, by that logic, if the holy thing always, like, spreads its holiness basically infinitely by the, almost the, the principle of, like, homeopathic medicine, you know, th things can just be, like, infinitely diluted. Uh, if it works like that, why couldn't you just, like, pour a drop of holy water into the ocean and then make all the water on earth holy? Hmm, I don't know, uh, because it eventually runs into uh, fish pee? I don't know. Um, <laughs> would that not have the—would would the holy water not have the power to overcome the pee, the pee-iness? Um, I don't know, or maybe maybe any animal that's not specifically mentioned in the Bible, if hmm. the holy water encounters its urine, then it, it stops. I don't know. Um, you know. Maybe there's a range of effect. You know, it's like Dungeons and Dragons. We'd have to look at the spell, the, the exact text of the spell and go by that. You know, this raises a good issue I was just wondering about, uh, about the similarities between uh, Dungeons and Dragons and constitutional law. And that, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. could could you have like similar uh, philosophy styles? Like, are there Dungeons and Dragons strict constructionists versus original intent versus like living document? Uh, I guess you know. I guess the the thing is in Dungeons and Dragons, you always have that dungeon master. Um, mm -hmm. That their their word is the final word. I guess that also has theological connections, right? Like that's the debate between sola scriptura versus like does the church have a say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, all, the, ultimately, the bottom line is ask your dungeon master, because they are, uh, <laughs> they, they are the, the divine will on earth. They are your pope. All right, this next message comes from Dan, and it is also about Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight. Dan says, and this is a this is a Crypt Keeper reference, so I'll try to do the voice. Hello, kitties. Oh, that's pretty good. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Dan says, hello, kitties. I'm writing in regarding 
your Weird House Cinema episode on Demon Knight. I never knew that it was a feature film that played in theaters and always thought it was a made-for-TV movie due to the fact that it was a Tales from the Crypt production, and I first watched it on HBO back in the late 90s. Personally, I thought the title never really fit, as Billy Zane is less a knight and more like a drifter or hitchhiker. It is it is a movie with, with a very high drifter quotient. Mm-hmm. Dan goes on, still I enjoyed it. I'm glad that you decided to cover Demon Knight and not Bordello of Blood, because that movie, even by late 90s horror standards, is terrible. (laughs) Why would anyone ever cast Dennis Miller as the snarky protagonist in a horror movie? Quick fun fact regarding Demon Knight. I remember watching an interview somewhere with Jordan Peele, who was asked his favorite final girl, and he said it was Jada Pinkett and Demon Knight. Loving the Weird House Cinema episodes, favorite Dick Miller roles are in The Howling, Gremlins, and Terminator, Dan. Hmm. Oh, Dan. Well, this was a great bit. And somehow this fact about Jordan Peele seemed familiar to me. I wasn't sure if we had mentioned it in the episode, but I assume not uh, since you brought it up in the email here. So so I looked this up. I found the actual uh, video. It's uh, apparently an interview with the Wall Street Journal, which seems like a kind of strange <laughs> Uh, venue for Jordan Peele to discuss uh, his his thoughts about horror as a genre, but it, it it was a good interview where they were asking some kind of quick direct questions about like his favorite examples of things in horror, and he was giving his answers. And uh, th- there are some write ups you can find on the internet, like articles that summarize it. But I just wanted to talk about a few of the things he says. Oh, and, and by the way, I guess I sh- should just say, yeah, I, I'm a big Jordan Peele fan. I love Key and Peele. It's one of my favorite. Uh, comedy shows of of mm-hmm. recent years and Jordan Peele's horror movies are really good. Oh, absolutely. But anyway, on the subject of horror, he talks about how the first movie that scared him was The Fly. Excellent. Uh, and he says that it it scared him because he watched it in an age that was really inappropriate. He's I think he's talking about the David Cronenberg Fly, not uh, mm-hmm. not the one with Vincent Price. And so yeah, yeah that, that would is, mess you up. That, that, is that would mess you up. Not a movie for kids to see. I don't know mm-hmm. who should see that. I mean, like I respect that movie, but. Uh, yeah, fun for no ages. Yeah, that's like with me. I saw RoboCop way too early, and it's just like, <laughs> oh, my God. Really, really bit off more than I could chew with that. Uh, but he also talked about a thing with reference to The Fly that's something I definitely feel. Uh, he says, you know, uh, part of what's good about horror is that, like, uh, he said he watched The Fly, and it really messed him up. Like, it scared him. But then once it was over... He got through it and he was less scared because he'd made it to the end. And it, it mm. does give you a kind of feeling of mental fortification to like make it through a simulated scary experience in a horror movie. And then you come out the other end safe. Yeah. Uh, but he also talks about how his favorite musical score from a horror movie is Nightmare on Elm Street. I think that, that's I a good choice. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember it at all. I would not go in that direction. I'd, I'd obviously go with with you know some sort of carpenter score i imagine yeah i lean very on very much on carpenter for for horror scores uh but no the nightmare on elm street theme is good as the do 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 you know no okay uh, vaguely yeah <laughs> he says his favorite b horror movie is critters oh that's so good that's that one that's on that's on the the potential list for weird house critters is is good I, I need to revisit Critters. I basically don't have memories of this movie. I think I think I've only sort of half watched it. Yeah, I mean it's another Gromlin movie, so we got to get in there. He says the scariest horror villain is Michael Myers because he says he's not even evil; he's just curious. Which I see what he's saying about that, but uh, that's funny because that's a direct contradiction to what 
Loomis repeats over and over in oh, Halloween yeah. and the whole series. Is, the evil has escaped. He's the evil. <laughs> Why are you not listening to me, Jordan Peele? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is one part where he's asked to assemble an Avengers-style team of horror villains. This is a really good mix. He says, okay, Freddy Krueger, Candyman, the silver ball from Phantasm, Chucky from uh, from the what's the doll movies Child's Play, mm-hmm. and one of the graboids from Tremors. Now that is a team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, I I guess I could go with that. Yeah, come on, that's funny. Only three of them talk, and <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and you know Freddie's going to do most of the talking. Well, I don't yeah. know Chucky. Chucky and Freddie both really talk a lot, so yeah, it's going to be mostly them with the silver ball kind of going around in the background Mm -hmm. um yeah oh but then the last thing uh is that yeah in that interview uh jordan peele absolutely does say that he's asked his favorite final girl and he says jada pinkett and demon knight he says that uh she was the first black final girl that he could remember from a horror movie and and he identified with her i I think she's a great choice i mean demon knight as as we've said is is pretty wonderful yeah, pretty, yeah, it's, it's a solid horror flick, and yeah, and it it also goes to show you know the re- the representation matters. You know, mm-hmm. having having diversity in your cast matters because people are watching this and they're grow they're, you know they're growing up. Uh, in, you know, we shouldn't get our entire view of of reality from horror films, but like that's part of the media we consume. You know, yeah, the characters of horror films are not usually I don't know aspirational figures or role models, yeah. but uh, yeah. but B horror is a genre where I don't know. Uh, admirable levels of diversity are still not often achieved right absolutely here's a question though what would an avenger style team of horror villains like this what would they be trying to achieve what why would they come together like what would they be opposing i imagine it's like suicide squad or something right like yeah. the, we've got a we've got an even batter i mean i've never seen suicide squad I, i'm what i assume the plot of suicide squad is is we've got a villain who's so bad they can only be defeated by people who are themselves bad Mm. Oh man, what if it become? You could do it as like a generational thing, like mm-hmm. to like a uh, there's a super team of of boring modern horror icons, you know. So it's like uh, Ghostface and uh, and Jigsaw. I don't know. I realize those are probably not modern anymore, but it's like those guys, that generation of horror uh, villains, and opposing them the the previous generations of horror, generation of horror villains. So it's like generation versus generation. Who's going to win? Okay, actually, we just got a s- suggestion from Seth about what the modern horror icons are. These are good. I couldn't think of them. So you got Annabelle from the Annabelle movies, that messed up doll. Mm-hmm. And then you've got – I hate that thing. I tried to watch one of those movies. It was awful. Um, and then uh, and then the, the guy from Sinister, which I also have not seen those movies, but uh, Seth compared him to a member of, uh, of Slipknot, and I think that's appropriate. That's exactly what he looks like. Now, they're all from the same universe, right? Is that the Conjuring universe that I've heard talk of? Well, uh, Annabelle is the Conjuring universe. I don't think the sinister guy is. I think he's just New Metal Demon universe. Okay, all right. I, I'm just not not up enough on my uh, my current horror. I think. Okay, but anyway, so those are the villains, and then you need a team like a cracked Avenger style team of traditional horror movie monsters, demons, and and ball technology to go up against them. All right, sign me up. Okay, Phantasm Ball versus Blair Witch. How about it, right? The question is, does the ball get lost in the woods? It's zooming around, but is it zooming in circles? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll give it a shot. All right. Well, I guess we're going to go ahead and uh, put a stake in this one as well. Um, this is your weekly listener mail, but we'll be back next week, most likely, with more listener mail. So keep it coming if you have thoughts on 
content from this episode. If you have uh, thoughts on recent episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, recent weird houses, recent artifacts, or older episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, ideas for future episodes, all of that is on the table. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out any of these various episodes, you can find the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, a quick way to get to it is to go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, and that will send you to the iHeart listing for our page. And if you go there, you can also click on the store, uh, and that will take you to a place uh, where we have like a tea Public shop where you can buy some some logos on uh, T-shirts and stickers and whatnot. So, you know, that's kind of fun. Check it out if you want. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in-ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below-market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in-ready home and start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.